You know what the problem with filming outdoors is? It's, uh, I look great and you look really pale. They can't see us. So the bow leg thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's because uh, cowboys ride horses and it like makes their legs bow. It really makes their leg bow. It's not, I just thought it was swagger. I mean, it is, but it's because anybody hopping off a horse to go into a bar and drink whiskey looks cool as hell. Uh, now it looks ridiculous. I'm Ace Callwood. And I'm Scott Wayne. This is Amber Recorded Radio. Okay, sponsor for this week yeah. are the Alamo Rangers in the yeah. state of Texas. Are those things? Yeah. Alamo Rangers. Because right now we are on the compound of the Alamo. We are. And there are a couple of officers who are kindly holding back people who are watching us who for some reason think we're famous. Somebody just took a selfie with So us. let's just it's be ridiculous. clear, you, you stole slash borrowed a cafe table from the hotel we're staying at, carried yes. it down the street, and we're Correct. now sitting in front of the Alamo recording Envoy Recorded Radio. Nothing you said was a lie. All right. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very, no, quite seriously, thank you very much to the Alamo and thank you to the Alamo Rangers for allowing us to broadcast from here because we wanted to talk about storytelling and we wanted to talk about how history is used in different ways <laughs> to tell stories. Yeah. And so maybe we tell the story of the Alamo through a couple of different lenses. Would you like to do the American one? The American, the American version is uh, facing overwhelming odds during the Texas Revolution the defenders of the Alamo, who included lore, at least would suggest Davy Crockett, and uh, is it John Bowie? John Bowie. Is that his first? Uh, of, of Bowie so he wasn't. Ilk? It wasn't David. It wasn't David Bowie. Uh, the other Bowie who came up with a Bowie knife. Um, they and between 185 and 260 other Americans were here at this. Uh, is this a chapel? It's a mission. It's a it's mission. It's a Spanish mission. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, they were here, and uh, something like 3,000 Mexican soldiers attacked them here, blew the doors off with a cannon, and slaughtered every one of them. And it became the rallying cry, remember the Alamo. And as a result of that, one, I know the phrase, remember the Alamo, and two, uh, it spurred the rest of America and uh, folks in the Texas Revolution to band forces, build an army, and then uh, I think it was Sam Houston led the army mm -hmm. against uh, General Santa Ana. But it was a it, but it was a huge loss. This, was is, a this is what's route. interesting to me: yeah. is how these things that were enormous catastrophic losses become yeah. sort of ingrained in ingrained in the narrative. Pearl Harbor yeah. was a huge loss. Dunkirk, Dunkirk was a huge yeah, loss, and they're all sort of these celebrated moments that pull people together, yeah. rather than potentially the great victories. Like we're not, we're not protecting particularly monuments to VE Day, or well, maybe we are, but it's just interesting it goes that way. But of course, so then to, to go back to the storytelling, <laughs> of course, there's another story about this place, okay. which was um, Texas was legally fully part. So so Mexico had won independence from Spain. Yep. Uh, as a result of that. Mexican land included Texas, New Mexico, California, right up to Oregon. And uh, American immigrants, American illegal immigrants into Mexico. Yes, they were illegal immigrants, um, yeah. Were taking over land here and they had, uh, they had brought with them slaves. And Mexico had outlawed slavery. Yep. And they tried to impose the law. And there was a revolution. There was a Texan revolution where the, the Texians, which was the name for the white Texan immigrants, the, yep. as they referred to themselves, rebelled um, and actually kicked the Mexicans out of the Alamo. Yeah. And it was the Mexicans coming back and bravely taking it back. 
Yep. It's the story of the Alamo from a Mexican perspective. And, and General Santorana, now he did, he did not uh, give quarter to any of these prisoners of war. No, he did But didn't. you had an angle on that. They did something. Y- y- well, right? uh, yeah, twofold. One, uh, <laughs> the Americans were fighting for an open border for immigration into Mexico. And I think the irony there is just fascinating. Uh, but second, yeah, so um, uh, President General, President General, I want that title. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, uh, he called them pirates. He decided they were pirates. And he wrote a letter to, I believe it was um, Andrew Jackson, uh, our president at the time, and said, they're illegal, they're in our country, they're breaking our laws, and at this point they have become pirates, which means they're no longer um, combatants as much as they're, uh, we don't have to show them quarter. And so, yeah, he kind of created space for him not to take any prisoners, but to kill everyone. So this was this was an <laughs> early legal version of Guantanamo. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Fascinating. This turned out to be way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Anyway, that's not. we were not here for history classes. We're here because we're with... Uh, with NASA, with their, what's CAS? Uh, Convergent, Convergent Aeronautic Solutions yeah. Group. So the, the futurist group of NASA, they look 75 to 100 years out, identify societal problems, and come back to today to solve them. So we just got out of a session, uh, well, we were covering all kinds of things, but one of the things we can talk about was artificial intelligence. And yeah. one of the things that I loved, as we talk about sort of different perspectives and different narratives, Absolutely. was the conversation that... Uh, we've talked about AI being biased before, yep. and that was validated through the work that, that some of these uh, NASA researchers had done. Yes, it is it's biased around what's loaded in it. It skews Western, it skews English, it skews white male. But this idea of hallucinations that, that yeah. everybody else has been talking about, you should try to control for and limit the limit quote, hallucinations. hallucinations of AI where it goes sort of off the wall and more creative and uh, making abstract connections between things. But when you're looking for solutions they were, far out. Yeah, they were making the case, no, 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 embrace them. How do you imagine the have, future? Have AI yeah. go crazy? Well, a very clear AI is not thinking. It's sure. making connective connections between it's different concepts. Is, but I think. but yeah. change the temperature so that it, it makes more uh, looser connections yep. to break groupthink, yeah. which is what we talk about in negotiation of foreign policy it all is. the time. It's like break the mode of thinking. At the, so they're actually saying it's not a flaw in chat GPT, or if it is, yeah. let's harness it to think think wide. I mean, so we, we use a technique called alternate perspective. Uh, yeah. Jamie Jones-Miller from our team and I uh, ran a workshop in D.C. earlier this week. That was yesterday. Was it yesterday? <laughs> yes, yesterday. Lord. Uh, yeah, but we, we introduced a couple innovation concepts, and one of them is alternate perspective. Think about how you might solve a problem if you were Angela Merkel or um, Gandhi or Xi Jinping, right? Like stepping away from who we are and our biases and putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes to come back and solve a problem is effectively what um, they were talking about today with ChatGPT. It's let it hallucinate because it's going to give you a version of the future that you might not have considered and then you can start to play with the implications of that. But it's the same thing to step outside of who we are and our biases and, and maybe lean into an environment we wouldn't be familiar with. I so, think it's brilliant. So as we think about alternative realities around tech, yeah, uh, this week is the 30th anniversary of the invention of the World Wide Web. Wow. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee, who was the, named as the inventor of the World Wide Web, not the internet, but the, the, but the World sure. Wide Web, the interface that goes with it. And, but the intellectual property was owned by the lab where he worked, which is CERN Labs in, in Switzerland. Yep. And they made the decision 
uh, to give it away for free. They sort of did yeah. an they they did an anti Silicon Valley and <laughs> said, look those damn Europeans, they don't know how to make money. <laughs> they gave it away for free, and I I wonder if can we just pause? Yeah. So so Vera, our chief of staff, is standing by Perry as he records this, and has just given the most enormous yawn. That so maybe we just change subjects, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> No, oh no, she was. Oh, oh she, oh, she yeah. just. She may have been picking you up from the airport did, yeah. at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. But what what would have happened if they hadn't? If they'd have commercialized it? If you had out to, of the gate? If you had to pay to play? Huh. If you had to meet so it would be. I wonder if it wouldn't be like the Apple App Store. I think fewer people. But the App Store. You trust it. It's regulated. It's controlled. And now mm. you may disagree with the criteria that Apple apply to it, and they may gouge it. Yeah. But if the World Wide Web was more closed, maybe we wouldn't have this social madness questioning of what facts are. And I'm I'm not saying shit. I just think it's an interesting. I I I don't actually have. I don't know. Like that's a hard thing to conceptualize. Having spent as much time yeah. on the internet as I do, we like, just assume it's free. We, we do. Talk about challenging assumptions. That's, that's a tough one. I might have to revisit that next week. That's where I like, put proper thought to it. Okay. All right. Um, oh, which did. There, there, was a brilliant, um, there was a brilliant New York Times opinion piece. It was by, uh, hang on, hold that, hold that thought. Maureen Dowd, very, very famous columnist in the New York Times. And she was talking about, so as I have ranted before, that work from home being the most terrible thing in the world. Yep. But she was talking about what a newsroom drama would be today. So if there was like a big <laughs> breakthrough story that the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Guardian or somebody broke and then they made a Hollywood movie about it, it yeah. would just be people sitting at home in their pajamas slacking with each other. <laughs> but so I'm just piling this on. Is It's just in the interests, in the interests of, I don't know, fiction, narrative, filmmaking, please get out of your pajamas and go somewhere else to work. And it, you don't have to go to the office. Just work anywhere but home so we can have some stories. Here we go. Okay. Um, talking about stories, can we talk about... Um, well, actually, let's go to innovations first. Innovations. From that. All right. So we're going to do reverse innovations. Ooh, one um, of my favorites. When you, when you washed this morning... Yeah. I'm not even sure you went to bed last night. Did you go to bed last night? You got in so late. I took a nap last night. Okay, so you got in around 3 o'clock in the morning. I did. And then Vera picked you up, which is why she's yawning now. Not it because, is. yeah. And then. Uh, this okay. is. You're just but when you, your when you took right a shower, now. sorry, yeah. V. When you took a shower, what did, you, what did you wash with? Shower gel or soap? I'm a soap. Well, we're in a hotel and I don't bring shower gel. Um, so, soap, a bar of soap, yeah. What, what do you use at home? Uh, it depends on the day. Oh, actually, yeah, um, but usually bar soap. Oh, well, you might be proving my point. Is that good or bad? So my reverse innovation was going to be that if if we started with shower gel, yeah. So we started with soap. Soap's been around for a long, long, long it time. It has, yeah. And then we quote invented shower gel. That we would think soap. So sorry. So we did that, and they then invented if, soap in Fight Club. I saw it happen. This is not going well, is it? I love it. I'm being murdered at the Alamo. My point is, if we started with shower gel, then we invented soap, we would think it was the coolest thing in the world because it doesn't have packaging. It doesn't have, it's sustainable. It's sustainable, it's compressed, it's probably the most efficient thing you can ship because it's all in... It's very dense, yeah. ...rectangles and okay. goes together. I'm, look, I'm tracking. I wasn't with you when we started, but I appreciate... Do you use shower gel or... 
Are you about to like after that tell me you use shower gel? I'm one of those people I don't I don't use yeah. soap at all. I don't use any cleansing products. I self clean. Oh no comment. No. Yeah, no anyway, comment. Another one. Reverse innovations. So we're gonna keep this going whether people want to or not. Okay. Um, while we're on soap though, yep. have you seen the Dove video about the role of social media and young girls? No, but you were telling me about okay. it. It's still right. on my to we're watch go, list. We're going to put a link yep. in the in Envoy Notes around this. It will, if it doesn't make you cry, you'll be very close to it. And I think, like, as we're uh, as we're thinking about the, we gave the World Wide Web away for free. The role of artificial intelligence. It's pretty clear that AI is out of the gate now because Silicon Valley can't restrain itself because of competitive pressures. Sure. Right. That that. Yes, Google had restrained itself, Facebook had, Microsoft had all restrained themselves, they all had AI running in the background, chat GPT launches, and then they're off. They, yeah. they financial interest in those things. So we're just going, and this commercial by Dove, which is about the role that social media has played in girls' self-esteem and to clinical and health outcomes. Like protecting children from social media, right? Yeah, and I, I heard, Hillary, I know, Hillary Clinton can be very divisive, but I heard her speaking the other day and she made this comment that like, look, the tell here is that Silicon Valley executives don't let their kids on social media. Mm. Like if you want a measure for this thing. Um, and I, it's, I mean, what does that say about the thing, right? Right. Uh, and so, but here's my question for you. What, how do you feel when big corporations, Dove is a brand of Unilever, get involved in these social campaigns? Because we take a lot of flack for working with some big corporates around social impact stuff, which you know, which is seen as just selling out, greenwashing, issue washing, all of those things. I does think it matter? Is it important? Yes, and maybe yes, but I haven't decided yet. I, I haven't gotten to the turn. Um, I think corporations function to make money. I also think there are some incredibly thoughtful people at the firms that we see around the globe, whether we work with them or not, is probably less important. But the the global firms that we see, like a Unilever, and the agencies that they work with who are incredibly gifted at crafting stories, talk about stories and shaping narrative, I think their function and their focus is to make money. And if there happens to be a good societal message that gets passed along as a byproduct of that, it's Good. I'm not going to discount the message, but the underlying, I understand how capitalism works and it's that they are improving their bottom line or their brand reputation, which the extension of that is to improve bottom line. And so I'm not like blinded by that is my point. That's kind of interesting. In a way, you're saying that it's more pure for, or excuse the pun, it's cleaner mm. Mm. for a brand to sort of run a campaign that's also in its interests than say if this was by some nonprofit yeah. that was funded by Unilever, like it's a donation, so it's the same amount of cash. You're saying actually, just own it, just like own that issue, recognize that it helps you sell more. Yeah, it's totally fine. Yeah. Almost better than yeah, writing a check to a charity. Especially as we watch the kind of economic power shift to the next generation of folks who care about purpose and care about um, political activity and care about giving back to the community. I mean, like we're thinking about buying power from millennials and Gen Z, and these are the things they care about, and especially as they're having kids, right? I, like. 
Yeah, it's self-serving while it might function to serve society is the point that I'm making. And I think sometimes we want to pick one or the other and I can see both happening because that's how big business functions. Okay. Those mm. are my thoughts. Should we talk about me? I feel like we're going to. <laughs> so we're in front of a fortress. Yeah. And I feel like I should have hidden in a fortress for the past week since I slammed servant <laughs> leadership last week. You've been taking <laughs> flack for that. I have taken a lot of flack for me criticizing servant leadership as not being a great leadership model. Oh, wow. And I've been challenged to describe what I do believe in, Okay. You know, which is a fair critique. It's like, fair. all right, all right. So what do you, you believe in, So Scott? you hate the thing that's all humble and grounded and being there for employees and supporting them. What do you believe in? And I've realized, that, so I, I took some time to think about it. Okay. And took some time to think about that's the people dangerous. I've loved working for. Yeah. And I've realized I believe in the opposite. I believe in, how, and what would be the opposite of servant leadership? It would be servant serving leaders. But I don't mean it like that. But empowerment mm. upwards. Mm -hmm. So this is a serious point. And I, I, I'm happy to debate this with people. Let's explore before so we debate. So what is more effective? Yeah. Is it for the people that work for you, say, let's yeah. say you're in, a, you're in a company. Yep. You take the time to understand what your employees need. Yep. Going and sort of creating those resources for them and then letting them do their best work. And your focus is on supporting them yep. and the idea that the organization raises. And I get that. I completely get it. Sure. But is it as effective as employees who are under you doing everything they can to empower you to do your best work, essentially stealing the work from under you, pulling it down so that you're free, putting actually putting accountability pressure on you to do your best work, and they are sort of learning through the process but your focus is external on like pushing the limits of whatever company you run versus being internal and focused upon empowering. So I think about the, the places I've had explosive career growth. And I think about the people who work for us who have explosive career growth. It hasn't been because somebody sort of gifted me an opportunity. It's been because you sort of ferociously took it from that person and that lifted them up. And then your boss essentially becomes addicted to you. Uh, yeah, I, I think you've created a false dichotomy right. there. Um, but, but because it depends on the style of the leader. You're incredibly gifted at the things that you do, and that is being external. I've seen, I mean, I, there are a couple who come to mind. I won't put, I won't put names. So, you, Actually, I take that back. I've got a really good friend, um, David Vogelier, I think is he's an incredible developer. But the place that he is most gifted is creating more senior developers, mm -hmm. ostensibly the ones who are going to replace him as the CTO of the tech company that he runs. Um, you know, like Vogie would actually be an incredible individual contributor, but arguably would create fewer senior developers and potential CTOs across the tech ecosystem in which I inhabited in Richmond, Virginia. So. I, I think Vogie's great in the way that he approaches. What's funny is he has a dear friend of mine working for him now. I was a terrible manager of that dear friend. Oh, that person. Vogie okay. is a better manager <laughs> of same dear friend because he, he coaches and he builds. And, like, that wasn't my style. Our styles are similar in a lot of respects, you and I's. Um, yeah, I was a bad manager of that person. I think it depends on the people and it depends on the culture of a firm and the leader. And so I don't think your style is conducive to how he approaches leadership, nor do I think he could lead in the way you or I might. So maybe what I believe then is you just clearly one or the other. I clearly 
and around, I think being selfish as a leader is most important. He also has articulated, he derives value from coaching and guiding and being replaced by his people. Whereas I find that I derive value from building a badass team that can go function in tandem and I get to continue doing what I do incredibly well. Um, I, but selfishness is important there to articulate this is what I need and I'm building uh, an appropriate team around me. Um, not many people do that well. So I'm not saying don't subscribe to servant leadership or whatever that is, but do it because it's good for you, not because you think that's the way we're supposed to lead. Yeah, so I've also been called out for sort of actually doing servant leadership while saying that it's not. But I, I have a clarification on that. I think mm. that's just being a servant. So today I went to buy sweets for you the did. team. It was cute. But that wasn't servant leadership. I, I just went, that was just servant. Yeah. I just went to buy sweets for the team. And I, like, I, I don't know. See, I, I think this is what grates on me. I, like, I don't like these sort of gestures of humility that are designed as leadership. Just, just go do the thing. Mm. But, I'm, but I am sort of intrigued where if you start blending it, where one minute you are the person who's, hey, I'm here. What do you need? How do you become? <laughs> you can see from my tone, I'm very yeah. derisive around it. <laughs> but, but then on the other hand, you're like, oh, I need this because yeah. it's now a priority. Then you've got people punch drunk. So be a consistent asshole is what I'm saying. Be a consistent asshole. But which one are you? Is Scott's leadership philosophy? Oh, so imagine General Santorano marches in, and and the 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 Americans are at the battlements, and General Santorano goes to all the privates and says, "What do you need?" They go, "I need a beer right now." <laughs> this right. fort would still be standing. Yeah. Well, it is standing, kind of. What I would like, um, for you, you asked, what am I? What I would yeah. like is to be leading my team half a step ahead. And not half a step because I want to do less work, half a step because I want my team to be keeping up, like on my heels. And that is pushing me to continue to do better work and to continue to hone my skills. But what I'd, I'd like to do is talk about we collectively. And when a decision needs to be made, and if it comes down to me, I'm going to take the blame because I'm up front. I'm also going to dictate what needs to happen because I'm up front. But I would like my team close enough to whisper in my ear, hey, I'm also an expert, and we ought to turn right right now. I don't want to be so far ahead that they're following because I'm that far ahead. I want them making decisions as their expertise rises and even surpass me every now and then. But I expect that I'm going to be out front 95% of the time. All right. I don't know. I do know. That's how I feel about it. You wanted to talk about uh, personas, given yeah. that we're talking about types, types of leadership. Yeah. Personas. No, I, I, saw, I saw a piece. We've been talking a lot about firms who want to reach, uh, talking to firms who want to reach specific audiences and shift the way that they connect with people. And they often ask if we can build demographic profiles and personas, user personas, around, uh, around the types of people they want to reach. And I saw this piece that is probably better articulated than I've ever said. Um, but it was talking about uh, trying a thought experiment around persona building. And instead of saying... Uh, Denise is 37, uh, divorced mom of three kids from Albuquerque. She works in finance. She earns $70,000 a year. Um, she throws left, votes right, throws right, votes left, whichever. Right? Like we've created this demographic based profile. Instead, which would be more helpful, is Denise is on the sweltering hot beach with her three kids. They're getting hungry. One of them has to pee. 
Like if I'm an organization trying to connect with Denise, that's actually more tangible, useful information for me to use. Whereas we spend a lot of money trying to get the demographics and even sometimes the psychographics. Whereas the situation in the context is most helpful to say, how might I talk to this person, articulate that I can solve their problem and invite them in to be a patron? Like that's actually more helpful information. And I like that reframing. So you're making the case instead of it running demographic information, the so it's not the 55 year old white woman next to the 23-year-old Hispanic guy, it's that they both really needed to pee at that moment. Yeah. No, but there's like, Legitimately. It's, it's criteria by pressure points. Yeah. So you're cutting around pressure points and not. There is, there is millions of dollars spent on this demographic profiling. Yeah. It's not that and you can't get some leading indication. In presentations <laughs> where we have yeah. to listen to this stuff. It's not that leading indicators can't come out of one's demographics and where they live and who they associate with and some of the societal pressures to conform to a group. Like, sure, but at an acute moment in time, a person's scenario is probably more important than their demographics. And we miss the former in favor of the latter so often. That's, I thought that was an appropriate reframing of how we might connect with people. So that links to this idea that we, so we're with a group of people right now who are, who are talking about not so much responding to trends, but preempting where the world's going and creating technologies that will support the world, yeah. but American government and American companies yeah. to be prepared for that. This, this whole idea that you can manifest the future, of which I'm quite, again, quite derisive. <laughs> but can we just talk about uh, Aglo, the town in New York? It's oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was so, cool. So this was presented as the idea of that if you put enough focus on a thing, you can make the thing become real. So when we say that we'll never have, I don't know, flying cars or we won't be able to make, uh, you know, oxygen out of grass, that, that they, you, particularly on the social design, though, that we can get people to do almost anything. A little bit like if the World Wide Web was private, or you, yeah. I, you know, you only allowed, you only allowed people with an Indian passport to use it. Whatever the criteria is. Yep. But um, so, so, <laughs> Aglo in New York. So uh, the the background context was about map making, right? Yes. Um, yeah. In that map making, map makers, map companies put fictitious towns on their maps. It's called a copyright trap. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's a thing. All right. So a copyright trap is where you you purposely place an error yep. into a published work. Yep. So that if somebody a copies very intentional it, invisible yeah, error, you basically yeah. go to court and you say, hey, look, they fell for the copyright trap. They, they copied they ours, and the only them. reason this would be on it is because yeah. they copied it. Okay. So Aglo yeah. in New York yep. was a copyright trap. It didn't exist, and cartographers put it on their maps, or a cartography company put it on their map. Yep. It was published by uh, Exxon, actually, um, or what is now Exxon, and it was for drivers, but word got out that it was a copyright trap, and then so people started going to see this place on the, that didn't exist. Yeah. But then as a result, they were, the team it's today were like describing... Businesses started businesses popping started up. Businesses started popping <laughs> like lemonade sellers and coffee stands and, until it became a and place. And swag and yeah, 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 souvenirs from Aglo. Yeah. And so Aglo New York now exists. Yeah. And there's, is there a mayor? Rand McNally. Do you remember? Rand oh, you McNally. don't. Well, yeah, the, you the won't remember maker? maps. Oh, yeah, Rand McNally. Yeah, so Rand McNally. They're so it became quest, a place. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fascinating. So we can manifest things and you're wrong is the short despite how derisive you want to be about it. So I think we should do this. Yeah. I think we should just, let's just talk about a place. 
let's not have it on a map. Let's not put it on a Google map, apparently, or anything. But let's just talk about a place. I think we could do it in Richmond. Until it becomes a thing. I think we could, too. Yeah. Let's just make up a spot on the river and tell people we're going to start there. Like, not Pony Pasture or Reedy Creek. We're starting at this point on the river. It's just a random put-in. Let's make a put-in. Like, not physically, but let's just, like, tell people that this is where we put in and name it. We're going to meet to Alamo Rapids. There we go. Alamo Alamo Rapids. Rapids. So hereby named. Let's see if in a year Alamo Rapids appears on any map on the (laughs) internet. And that's that's our test. That's our test. All right, look, we don't we don't have long, and, and the the three people who are listening to this have important things to do. Um, just back to history for a second. Ah, are um, we going to my favorite major? No, that's oh, not where you were going. Yeah, let's actually let's finish on. Oh, that. we can let's go there. Okay. okay. All right. Um, nine, uh, excuse me. Seventeen fifty nine. Not nineteen. Anything. Seventeen fifty nine. Young Major Robert Rogers. You like saying that, don't you? Young Major Roger Roberts. Robert Rogers. Uh, French and Indian War um, formed a group of what he called Rangers. Rogers Rangers. And they were trained in guerrilla tactics and kind of tactics from the indigenous peoples, actually, and and how they operated and functioned. Whereas typically war was kind of in columns, face to face. Let me look at you and let's just see who can shoot more accurately. Um, But yeah, ducking behind trees and running through the woods was not the way of doing things. And so he wrote uh, 28 rules of ranging. Um, rules and guidelines and they were adopted to this day which is really cool um, by the first ranger battalion and now they are the standing orders of the 75th ranger regiment of the united states army which i think is fascinating but these rules still exist today and they're still accurate the first one which is one of my favorites don't forget nothing (laughs) that's just the first rule don't forget nothing uh, if you're on the march, act the way you would if you were sneaking up on a deer. See the enemy first. That's how he wrote him. I, I, I like it. number four. Tell the truth about what you see and do. There is an army depending on us for correct information. You can lie all you please when you tell other folks about rangers, but never lie to a ranger. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's... Um, when we camp, half the party stays awake while the other half sleeps. That's what we did last night. Very I was well. fast asleep. <laughs> Perry and I were fast asleep. This is this is why we did that. We're following there we go. Roger Rangers, Rangers regular Rangers rules. Rules for Rangers. Perry and I were fast asleep when you two were wide awake. Uh huh. Can can I share my favorite though? Please do. Because I feel I feel if you're a client of our firm, you'll be able to relate to this. Because I feel <laughs> this is our one rule. If somebody's trailing you, make a circle. Come back onto your own tracks and ambush the folks that aim to ambush you. <laughs> Look, I love it. The Ranger Creed. <laughs> can we get that printed on our business cards? We, could, we probably shouldn't. Circling but yes, we back can. to ambush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. All right, so we're going to finish there. But, so. So. What if, mm. given that I'm going to take another pounding for my attitude about leadership, what if we take, what's he called? Roger. Roger. Yeah, yeah, Robert Rogers, 28 Rules of Ranging. Uh, what if we take those, 28 mm-hmm. rules? Yeah, 28 Rules of 28 Ranging. 28 Rules, and we publish them side by side. With, like, with today, modern, our, like... Our modern interpretation. Leadership. What, what we believe in. Oh, that'd be fun. So instead of just critiquing, which is, you know, 90% of the, these radio episodes... Oh, we're going to... We, 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 we have say to do this something now? We, we have to translate into modern life. Well, I'm retiring from All radio. Right. No, we should absolutely do that. Uh, if you want a copy... Shoot us a, 
note, and when it's done, we'll send you one. And I think that's it. It is. So thank you to the Alamo for hosting us today. Uh, uh, remember the Alamo while we're on that Remember, topic. come visit. Thank you to the city of San Antonio and to all of those people who have taken selfies with us thinking that we're famous. <laughs> we're so sorry. And we'll see you next week. Maybe. Maybe.